Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. Today's episode marks another milestone for the podcast, as it's episode 30. It has been great so far, and I'm really excited to continue to grow the podcast and bring you more inspirational guests over the rest of the year and beyond. I wanted to say a big thank you to those of you who are listening, who have shared the podcast with friends and colleagues, and also a big thank you to those of you who have messaged me directly to let me know how the podcast and the insights that my guests share have helped you in your own career. It really does mean a lot. Like I said before, I do this podcast and very often it's just myself and the guest I'm interviewing or me on my own. So getting feedback from you to know that you're enjoying it is a really big thing for me. And please, if you are enjoying this and thinking, I'm not sure whether I should drop Nick a message, do it. I love to hear from you. If there's something I can help with, I will. So drop me a message and let me know what you're enjoying or if there's anything that you would like me to do an episode on or something that you want me to do a video on. To celebrate episode 30, I wanted to do something a little bit different, and I'm really excited about today's episode. Since starting this podcast, the one group of people that I consistently get messages from are those of you who are looking to go out on your own, be it as a contractor, be it looking to set up your own consulting business, or be it to create a business that's in a completely different field. As such, I thought, what better way to help those of you thinking of going out on your own than to bring you an interview with not one, but two people who are successfully doing this. Today's guests are Karina Brown and James Stitchbury, or Jim, co-founders of Grow Happy. Grow Happy is a B2B SaaS platform that helps companies keep their employees engaged and productive by offering them the right development opportunities at the right time. I was introduced to Karina in the very early days of Grow Happy, and I've had the privilege of watching as Karina and Jim have taken Grow Happy from an idea that they worked on during their evenings and weekends to a successful investor-backed tech startup with a growing professional services client base. Karina and Jim were brilliant guests, and we cover a whole range of different topics in this interview, including how Karina and Jim came up with the idea for Grow Happy and how they managed the early phase of the business to turn it from a side project into their full-time focus. Karina and Jim's top tips for prioritization and productivity when you are trying to spin so many plates as a startup founder as they are. The importance of advisors for early stage startups and how Karina and Jim identified their gaps and then found advisors to fill them and the lessons from their recent fundraising round and their advice to those looking to do the same. I really enjoyed sitting down with Karina and Jim and getting a chance to dig into the Grow Happy story, a lot of which I hadn't heard before. If you are thinking of going out on your own or have a business idea that you'd like to give a go but just aren't sure how to do it, then this episode is a must listen. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Karina Brown and Jim Stitchbury. Karina, Jim, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. Good to be here. It's fantastic to have you on, and I will have said this in the intro to the episode, but I've known you guys, and Karina particularly, for, gosh, it must be a good three years now since you started the business, and almost ever since I've launched this podcast, I've been itching to get you guys on. One of the big reasons, especially since starting this podcast, I've had a lot of people message me because they're looking to start their own business, so consultants who are looking to go out on their own, and this is something you guys have done, are doing incredibly well, and really excited to explore today. Probably best to start with, though, for those who don't know you, it'd be great just to get a, that bit of background on who you are and how you got to where you guys are today. Okay, all right. So my name's Jim. Thanks for the intro, Nick. So I started off my career as an aerospace engineer about 10 years ago, before quite rapidly moving to uh, EY in their, in their consulting team. And I was there for about nine years, kind of working on some big projects like the Olympics and some home office projects and that kind of thing, really fascinating stuff and work with some great people. And then towards the end of my career, I started to think about maybe wanting to do something different. And we'll talk a bit more about some of that stuff later on, but did some kind of experiments with secondments to things like social enterprises and moving to a four day week and some slightly radical things like that. And yeah, and then we started talking about Grow Happy, but I'll sort of hand over to Karina to explain more about that. 
Cool. So um, a pretty similar journey actually to Jim in some ways. So I started my career at Rolls-Royce. I was in their civil aerospace team, which was, um, which was pretty exciting. But then I got offered the, a job at EY on their graduate scheme. So I was lured down to London from Derby and um, started there. And I was there for about four or five years and was in the what was at the time the strategy team that focused on energy clients. And after a few years at EY, I got the opportunity to do a secondment, um, which was actually helping a entrepreneur build a talent technology business, all about diversity. And a little while after that, Jim and I started talking about Grow Happy. And I suppose that was kind of born out of our experiences as employees. And we saw a bit of a, a gap in the market. So can share a little bit about that if that's interesting. Oh, it's definitely interesting. And yeah, we'll definitely dive into that. And I think you both mentioned, obviously, the, the idea for the business be great to start with actually how that idea came about and how the two of you decided to pursue that together. Yeah, good. So good question. So so the idea came about, I suppose I could talk from my perspective first. So I found the process of figuring out what I wanted to do with my career really quite stressful and really quite frustrating. And I went through a period where I just I had no idea what I wanted whether that meant staying at the company I was at, whether that meant doing something different. And that whole process was extremely frustrating. And I suppose when Jim and I, we were, we were sort of friends, we'd worked together on a project at EY. And we weren't working together anymore, but we were still friends and we were both living in Brixton at the time. And we caught up for brunch one day and we were just kind of sharing out each of our experiences about that process of thinking about your career and trying to figure out what it is that you want to do. And we just thought, God, it's like, surely it doesn't need to be this difficult. Surely we could build something that makes it a little bit easier for people. And so that's that's really where the idea sort of started. And then the more that we started tinkering around with that idea and that problem space, the more that we realised that there was lots of other people in our shoes. And even more interestingly, a lot of companies that were looking to actually help their employees with that because they recognised that if they don't, then they're more likely to, to lose them and have people that aren't happy at work. So that's that's kind of where where it started and it, it feels like it was kind of at the right timing yeah yeah I think so I think since so actually a very you know, very similar experience to, to Karina and sort of the, the journey we went through and facing those challenges with navigating I suppose career change and and that kind of stuff and when we started building Grow Happy and speaking to organizations we realized that they were trying to do lots of things like building coaching cultures was something that came up quite a lot or helping build self-leadership skills in individuals like uh, you would only get if you were on a leadership program or a high potential program and providing learning which is really personalized and we thought why can't we make that available to everyone why can't we make those kind of things available to everyone and so we saw Grow Happy as being a way of democratizing some of those those outcomes for, for for everyone. And I want to come back on to how you got to where the product is now because I'm a spoiler alert for for those listening I, I know you didn't start where you've ended up and I'm really keen to explore that side of pivoting because I think it's something that a lot of people talk about but very few truly understand. I want to just hold on to that point around you you guys having brunch and then sort of taking this forward a little bit. We're, we're not going to move forward in our sections I promise but uh, I have and I'm sure you did prior to this you know I've had coffees and lunches and conversations with tons of people who want to start businesses or have great ideas but seldom rarely take the step that you guys did. Do you remember any of those conversations in that intervening period or questions you asked yourself when you were thinking about actually yes we are should I go from consultant with a good stable salary good career prospects into what at the time I imagine would have been quite a big unknown? Yeah I mean uh, so I mean I, I suppose there are a few pivotal moments for, for me that kind of made that happen and created that urgency. I suppose I'd had a lot of assumptions about what I wanted from my career for all the nine years I was at EY and there was a number of very specific conversations I had where people asked me quite challenging questions. You know, they, they'd ask me a question like, oh, you know, um, you know, what do you want out of your next promotion at EY? And, and it was one, one day someone asked me that question and I suddenly realised actually that that isn't kind of what I what I want right now, and and I think having that moment created some urgency to to actually take some steps. And there are a few things that I personally found very helpful. Like I think after that that sort of moment, I, I took time to kind of experiment. So I, I went to this this four day week, which gave me the sort of the, the headspace 
and the, the Friday, I suppose, just to sort of build a new network of people and just explore a little bit more. I, I went on this comment as did Karina, but mine was a different organization. Um, and I think I just, I think the other thing I did is I tried to become more open and honest at work with my manager at the time to sort of just sort of share what I was thinking. And then they were able to really help me and actually give me the encouragement that perhaps I needed. On that point, because it's something, and actually it's something I've been having conversations with others about recently, but how did you get yourself into that space to be open? Because other podcast guests have, have highlighted, like you say, the, that openness in conversations about where you want to take your career is key to letting people help you. If they don't know, they can't help you. But it comes with a whole load of fears and concerns. You know, the, the common one that I had and I know others have is, if I tell my boss I don't really see my future here, they'll fire me. Yeah. Um, how did you get over that fear or how have you since advised others who are you know, maybe in that same situation? So I think from the kind of honest conversation perspective, I think the only way to really identify whether or not there is an exciting opportunity for you to grow within an organisation is to have the conversation about what it is that you want. The next best outcome is that you have that great conversation and, and, and you're, you're, you're kind of given a, a rocket to go somewhere else and do that. And, you know, I think, I think, I suppose for me, I got to a place where I knew I needed something different. And I wanted to do it in a really positive way and I wanted to use the network I had. And I think by doing that, we, we now call on those people today mm-hmm. to help us in what we're doing now. And, you know, I think never say never. One day I might go back. And I think that's, that's, that's the kind of the, the way in which people, I think, leave organizations when they leave in the right way. That they maybe one day go back with new experiences and new skills so I think that was a bit of a mindset shift for me, I suppose, that I had. We, we had a really interesting example of one of the early users of On Grow Happy had, was working at a big organisation, wasn't feeling really fulfilled in the work she was doing at the time, but didn't have that conversation, thought, you know, thought nothing would come of it, and, and so just left. And actually went off and joined a startup, like so many people do, was really miserable there, because ultimately she hadn't really addressed some of the challenges and issues that she was feeling before. And then eventually was a, had a really open, honest conversation with someone back at her old firm who was then able to say, oh, you know, you're interested in startups. Well, we've got an innovation hub that we've just launched. Why don't you come back, you know, do the work that, you know, you're amazing at, but spend a day a week working there. And so those conversations and those opportunities just, they cannot be found unless those honest conversations happen. So I think, but it does, it does take a bit of bravery for sure. And so it might be that that led on to the sort of transition but that is the second part especially for those looking to start their own business the how do I make that leap you know the so you guys know sort of my background and I tried the go out and see if you can beat the runway to take off and failed at it I know you guys did the other way which is sort of build on the side and build while while working but that obviously comes with its own challenges and other things you've got to manage how did you two in the early days manage the development of the business and shaping it and beginning to sort of take it forward while still within you know your consulting roles yeah so I suppose there's a couple of different ways and we we tried different things you know over different periods of time so just some of the things we we did we were both doing at various different points in the early days of building grow happy we were doing freelancing work and we were lucky in that we both managed to kind of negotiate four day a week freelance consulting gigs which was actually at the time quite hard to do because the norm in freelance consulting from what we've seen is often kind of five day a week projects but we managed to uh, keep our Fridays free and so on Fridays we would work together and kind of take steps forward with Grow Happy. I think it's also fair to say we worked we worked on weekends and so there was kind of this uh, we were definitely it wasn't we finished working full time and it was kind of all or nothing we we definitely took kind of smaller steps i suppose towards it yeah i think ultimately i don't think i don't know about you but it never it never felt like a as much of a kind of dramatic risk i think as people maybe think and maybe i, I don't want to downplay that but as in mm. you know we we both i think built up a bit of a runway and that we knew we could survive on for a little while the freelance work kept us going a little bit longer mm. And I think, I think in the early days, deep down, we always sort of knew that, okay, if, if things really go wrong, we can go, we can go back and we won't have lost that much. In fact, we'll have gained a whole load of new skills that we, we wouldn't have developed otherwise. And so I don't, I, I don't know about you, but it never really felt like once we'd made it, I think making the decision was really hard and overcoming that. But once we'd, I'd made it, 
I sort of felt like actually it wasn't quite as scary as I'd anticipated in, in the early days. I think maybe it's got more scary as we've gone on. Yeah, <laughs> and it might be the points you just highlighted there, Jim, because that is the you know, that that is a really interesting take on it. That actually it's not as scary, especially for those listening who might be in that space. What are those? fears that I'm sure people come to you and maybe they don't say outright but you know you hear when you're having these conversations when they're saying maybe Jim you know I want to start a business like you what are those sort of common fears or or things that hold people back that they should be really focusing on and either coming to terms with or you know deciding from a priority perspective no that is a bigger priority so actually I can't do that so I think I think there are obviously often there are often practical challenges. You know, people have mortgages and, and people have other commitments. And I think at the time we were both in stage of life, maybe where we had some of that flexibility. I think I'm interested to get your view on as well. I think one of the big things that we hear is there is this social pressure, and I, I don't think it was necessarily something that really impacted me too much. But I think I hear, hear that from other people that they're worried about how it's going to slow them down in this in this trajectory that maybe they'd imagined they were going to have. Yeah. And and suddenly by they're putting that at risk and it's all they've known for the last 5 years and they're suddenly putting that trajectory at risk and and that's really hard I think for some people to deal with, you know, maybe they're going to slow down versus their peers. But you're slowing down on a different you're, you're moving on to a different trajectory. Mm-hmm. You're you're no longer competing and and you're getting a different experience. So yeah, I think that's one thing I think I've seen. Have you yeah, and I think that's, we had conversations about this in the early days about so much of our sense of self and sense of identity is tied up in the work that we do. And so, you know, I suppose I certainly felt, you know, when you're working at the likes of one of the big four, that is, you know, it comes with a certain amount of kind of prestige and, and um, credibility. And so I think there is sometimes like a bit of trepidation of like, if I step away from that, what is, what am I all about? You know, and... Um, I think that's something we hear sometimes. And what is it you say to people when they come to you with that challenge? Because that that challenge is real. And I know a lot of people who have and continue to have that challenge. You know, I'm, I've certainly had that challenge myself. What do you, to your point, Jim, of maybe it's a different play. Is there anything you either point people to, be it a resource, a bit of guidance, video, anything you send people to? Or is it more just something for them to, to consider themselves? I mean, that's you're kind of tapping into someone, I suppose, the nuts and bolts that grow happy there a little bit. But I think... I, you know, did quite a lot of work on myself as I was making my move away from EY. And, and I think when you do that, you get clear on what it is that's really important to you. So thinking about the kind of strengths you want to build and what it is you really care about. And when you do that, you suddenly realize that things like social pressures and social comparisons are actually quite low down my list. And these other things that were far more important. So resources I would point people to will obviously be Grow Happy. Uh, but, you know, I think there's you know, it's the kind of work the coaches do with individuals, right? They sort of get people to really think about, you know, what it is they most care about and what they should be focusing on. So I think it's not an easy thing to overcome, but I think a bit of self-reflection is one way of overcoming that. I think, like, one of the practical, just like it's a really practical tip, but is one of the questions that can cause a lot of anxiety is that question. So what do you do when you're at a networking event or you're at a dinner party what do you do? And that, you know, when you work, when you've got a job that everyone knows about, that's quite easy to answer. But when you step out on your own and, and you're probably still figuring out exactly what it is that you do, and that can be quite a anxiety-ridden question. So even just coming up with the sentence that you reply to that question can make a really mm. big difference of feeling a bit more confident about about that piece around um, identity. Yeah, because don't you find actually every time now it's a social occasion... I'm always practicing the elevator pitch and I always feel there's pressure to get it bang on even when you're just meeting someone in the pub. Oh, what do you do? Well, here's my 15-second elevator pitch. Here's my four slides. So, I mean, that's always there. That's always a challenge as well, I think. However, we're proud, proud of what you, you, know, you do. And, but, yeah, I think that's key. Yeah, and it's, it's, I mean, that, like you say, it's especially if your whole peer group are, let's call them professionals, you know, bankers, lawyers, consultants, and you, you go to these dinner parties and like you say, everyone is a one of those and then you you have to give a pitch which is something different and I know exactly what you mean I think that's a great bit of advice like you say of actually getting over that fear of being able to give that elevator pitch I'm not going to ask you to do either of yours however <laughs> Karina I do I do want to see the four slides that you keep in your <laughs> your pocket to, to get out of the set, set away. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned there around sort of the business and I think it'd be great to to dive into sort of that that growth story because you've hit a number of, you know, from 
an outsider's perspective, some really big milestones. You know, firstly, you started the business, you, you transitioned it from, from what it was to what it is, and then you've now successfully uh, sort of achieved a funding round that you know, is really propelling you forwards and will come on to the funding. But that point to start with around actually what the business was and then how you decided to shift it. Because from where I sit, and please jump in and tell me if this is wrong, you know, I think you, you've shifted your business quite fundamentally in terms of target market. It'd be great to dig into that a bit and understand actually at what point you decided or realised that you needed to make that change and how you were then able to make that change effectively to get to where you are now. Yeah, so maybe there's a bit of context we can explain what we are now and then it might Please. Kind of, um, explain the, the journey we took to get there. So so what we do now, Grow Happy, is essentially a platform, it's a software tool um, that we sell to companies that they give to their employees to help them better manage their career development. So whether that's self-reflection, so thinking about what is it that I want for my career or having better conversations with their career coach or line manager about it or discovering really relevant resources that can help them take steps towards whatever it is they're trying to achieve in their career. So in a nutshell that's what we do now. We build technology for companies to better support their employees but actually where we started at the very beginning was um, selling an online tool directly to individuals because we knew from our own experience that some people were struggling in that space um, and we knew that we would have quite valued a tool like Grow Happy at that time. And so, so what do we do? We went out, we interviewed a lot of people, we spoke to a lot of people, we started to try and understand more about the challenges that people were facing. And then we sort of built a very, mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say, scrappy version of the early product. We didn't get any developers in, it was literally just something we, we kind of put together ourselves. And we tried to validate, we got some early validation that people would, would pay for an online tool that helped them to think about their career and think about their next step. And we did that for a little while, and then we got, kind of got to a point where we thought, where we made a bit of a decision to pivot to B two B. Do you want to talk a little bit about about what? Yeah, so I think it was really fun doing the B two C stuff. I think we started when we started building the product. We we're obviously building very much for ourselves, almost, and the, for the experience mm-hmm. we went through. You know, we started to bring on board some advisors and some people that were really helping us think things through. And some of those advisors were senior people within professional services organisations. And we were, we were starting to hear that a lot of the pain points that individuals were facing uh, when it comes to this kind of stuff were things that companies were trying to help their employees with. And so we thought, well, actually, you know, is there an opportunity to bring, bring the two together? So I think that first we, we started to realise there was a genuine pain point in organisations wanting to help their employees uh, grow and develop. And then we also thought, actually, it doesn't make more sense for us. We know the market. We know professional services. Um, we thought we'd be able to get to a, you know, a steadier revenue stream faster, potentially. So we started at that point to, to build out our kind of our B2B value proposition, if you like. And we, we, we built our first proper version of the, <laughs> that we didn't build ourselves, mm. uh, first proper version of the, the product um, after that, which we then started you know, trialing and shipping to organizations. I think one of, the, one of the nice things about that journey that maybe we didn't really realise, we realise now with hindsight, but didn't realise at the time, is that what people say feels different about our product now is that it is really, really user-focused. And that's because, of course, we started building like a consumer product. And if you think about the consumer products that people use, like your Airbnbs, your Facebook, they, they look and feel very different to the HR systems that most of us are used to engaging with at work. And so actually I think that's helped us in one of our kind of key differentiators about building something that really does put the, the employee first. But that is sort of a reflection with hindsight rather than a strategic <laughs> move. No, and it's a really good point. And to the, the sort of decision to pivot, you mentioned you know, your advisors were sharing their their concerns and their sort of what they were struggling with, which you felt actually, yeah, we could, we could fill that gap. Were there any other drivers or metrics that you were telling you to go in that direction? Or was it more the, the strength of advice from the, the advisors you were with that made you think, right, that is actually, that's the right way to go? Mm, good question. I think I think it felt like a bit of a quicker route to scale. Mm. I think we, I think you know that the the idea of building a B two C product felt further away from our area of expertise. I think we both had experience in some capacity of selling, you know, in a B two B capacity. It felt like it was just closer to what we knew about somehow. I think you know, 
we'll probably talk about this later, we'll, we'll never shut the door on Grab being a B2C product. <laughs> you know, I think, yeah, I think that's something we're excited about in the future and how we can open that out, out to individuals. But yeah, I think the decision was how, how, how quickly can we prove that a product like Grow Happy can have a big impact? And we felt like we could do that, I think, quicker by you know, having a captive audience within a larger organisation. I think also you, I seem to remember, correct me if I'm wrong, that you were reading zero to one at the time. Oh yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, and there was, um, there was kind of a bit of a process in there that was one of the factors of helping us think this through, of like the different axes to look at. And one of them was this, this point around room for innovation. And when we looked at a lot of companies, we thought there is definitely room for innovation there, maybe more so than in the consumer side. Yeah, that's fair, yeah. Brilliant. And I love book recommendations. I get a feeling we're going to get a lot from from our interview and time together. So please, please, the more the the merrier. Um, On that point around, so the advisors and your advisors obviously had a pivotal role in that pivot. And actually, I'd be really interested on how you found or how you persuaded those advisors to work with you because you have a number of advisors and correct me if if any of my research is wrong here but you have a number of advisors they are all extremely senior or very well regarded in their fields and you know very often you see businesses with advisors like that and the default are, are you know the default uh, response is oh well so and so got that advisor because they've you know because they've done it before or they're senior etc cetera, etc cetera. You both came out of a consulting firm at sort of the middle level grades. You hadn't done a startup before and you've managed to get these fantastic advisors. Actually, how did you go about firstly identifying and then persuading these people to work with your business and sort of come on the journey with you? So we, we always and continue to, to need help. We've always got some challenge that we're grappling with, something that it's good for us to speak to people who have got different experiences to help us kind of figure it out and so a lot of the people that we consider advisors have we've perhaps reached out to and said like would you be up for just helping us with this or grabbing a coffee to talk this through and they've been kind enough to to oblige us I think that kind of reaching out asking for help obviously not everyone comes back I've probably asked many more people for help than you know came back and that's that's you know to be expected yeah I think I feel like all our advisors the story resonates and what we're trying to do resonates I think I think that work you know I think that's something that you know that works to our advantage and it's something that people really can care about and get on board with and and maybe they have their own experience in their careers where they've had a challenge and so I think that all of our advisors I would say are people that genuinely care about what it is we're doing and the impact we want to have and they're not just there because they want to give advice Um, so I feel like a big part of them coming on board was was getting on board with what we're trying to do and the impact we're trying to have and, yeah. and that connection as well. But I think to Karina's point, just to, I think it's that, it's that knockbacks you get when you ask for help. And that's probably one of the things you just have to, if you want to get advice on board, you just got to ask. Yeah. And you've got to be ready to not get any replies. And, you, and you know, but yeah, certainly. I'm going to keep on this and if there isn't, we can, we can move on quickly. But how did you, say in the early days, tend to approach those advisors? So do, what did you go out with a a message saying look we are looking for business advisors would you come on to help us sort of more formally was or was it for instance Karina like you said you know we've just got this little aspect can you help us grab a coffee and talk it through did you or do you have a sort of a structure that developed you know with hindsight of what led you to get the advisors you got I can probably give perhaps two examples of like that ended up being advisors who are advisors today that perhaps have a slightly different journey. So we're lucky to have um, Harry Gaskell, who used to work at EY at the same time as we did, as one of our advisors. And we, we kind of just, I think we reached, we reached out to him because he probably, I'm not sure if he remembered, remembered me from when we worked there, but uh, reached out and said, you know, we're, doing, we're building this. We'd love to get your thoughts on it. And one of the, some, here is one of the big kind of strategic questions we're grappling with. And we caught up for coffee maybe a few times over the course of, you know, a, a year before asking, you know, do you, would you like to, you know... It's a, it's a bit like going on a date, isn't it? It's like, <laughs> Would you go out with me? It's, it's like that type of question. Um, so that was kind of an example of a kind of ongoing relationship where it's now we kind of perhaps it's a bit more formalised as an advisor relationship. Another example, so we, we did a bit of a, well, we, we 
every now and then do a bit of an exercise on what are our gaps in terms of our skills and knowledge and experience. And one of our gaps was around software sales. And um, I went to a workshop um, through this um, program that we were on all about selling software. And the guy that was leading that or delivering that presentation was brilliant. And I learned so much in that workshop. And so I just mess we just messaged him afterwards and said, Hey, would can we spend like an hour talking specifically about our business? And that and then that kind of has evolved into he's a really good advisor for us now. So yeah, it probably just all comes back. What was that workshop? So we were lucky to get on the London and Partners Business Growth Programme, which is the Mayor of London's support programme for fast growing businesses in London. And they um, did a workshop, um, it was led by a guy called Ben Wright, who is amazing, all about sales acceleration and specifically for B2B software businesses. So it was spot on what we what we needed at the time. I will I will put links to, to both of those, to the to the programme and to Ben yeah, in the show notes definitely. so others can can look him up. And you you highlighted something there that I did want to touch on. And why don't we sort of dive into it now? Is that skills side of things? And you mentioned you quite regularly do that skills gap analysis. Could you talk a bit more about what that is and the process you go through for that? Yeah, so I mean, what we what we essentially do is we get on a, we get on a whiteboard and we uh, we list out all the things that we think I suppose need to be in place for us to grow the business. So it's everything from mobilizing a B two B SaaS business to sales to HR, which is obviously a key area of ours. And we go through those and we, and we sort of reflect on the coverage that we currently have. It might be one of our advisors covers several of those areas, or it might be we've got you know a, a blinding gap we need to we need to fill. And so from that we can sort of prioritise right where do we need where do we need to start. And as Karina says, we sort of repeat that exercise periodically because as as the business moves forward, new areas appear that we maybe didn't realise we had before, and we try and just make sure we have coverage across those different those different things. So yeah, quite a practical sort of process we go through really. And is that list because I re- I really like this exercise that you're talking about is is that has that grow so you mentioned around it grows with sort of the areas your business changes into over time is it that you simply add more skills to that list or is it that some skills that maybe were required in the early days have become redundant since and have dropped off that that list yeah I I think also as we've as we've brought on new team members they fill some of those gaps so for example a real practical example we used to have someone that's supported on a more informal basis on the kind of technical side but now that we've got more technical team members that's sort of covered so yeah I think I think those perhaps those priorities of those gaps shift over time Uh, and the list this skills matrix is purely for advisors is it no I I think we as I think we would plug those in any way that makes sense so we have a freelance marketing person for example who now provides some of our marketing expertise but we also separately have a bit of a marketing advisor so I think it just depends on the area but we'll just try and plug those gaps across the team um, and make sure there's someone that, that sort of knows about um, them in some way or another. Okay. I get the feeling that with these sort of things, you guys are, are quite structured. And I'd be interested, are, this is obviously one exercise you do quite regularly. What, if any, are the other, say, top two or three of those strategic exercises that you're doing on a quarterly or six-monthly basis that have really had the biggest impact as you've grown the business? So... I was going to talk about the two by two, but yeah. I might. <laughs> but it's not very strategic. But well, go and talk about the two. If it's I'll, sorry, we'll talk about the two by two. Take out strategic. What's had the and biggest we'll, impact? So it's such an obvious one, but the urgent, important two by two is the most used tool. I think probably in our team. It's just when you're doing having to cover as many bases and wear as many hats as you have to do in a small growing business that tool to actually figure out what is that what do I actually need to do this week is an absolute godsend so it's, it's not perhaps not as strategic although we always it links back to our strategic goals so I suppose in some, in some ways it is the other one I was going to say that is probably more strategic is that our, our big business hypotheses like what are our big assumptions that if they're not true raise a real question about our business model that's quite. That's one that we quite yeah. like. Yeah, we and I think the I think the one that's very much connected to that is we probably every few months we revisit the why, how, what mm-hmm. of our business because I think you know I suppose in where we are at the moment you know things are changing quite rapidly and you need it's quite hard to actually to be strategic strategic sometimes because 
you know, we don't have a detailed five-year plan. We have a guiding principle we're heading towards, and we're sort of navigating the ship in some direction towards it. So I think doing things like the why, how, what really help to keep us on, you know, heading heading in the same direction, roughly. And I just to that point around, it might be the urgent, important, or just more broadly about, like you said, Jim, that how you keep yourselves towards that guiding light is. In a world where you know you guys are flat out doing everything with the business, like you said, you it's a small team. You've got to wear many hats. Is what approach have you have you found that has enabled you to carve out the time for these activities, or how have you avoided just simply running on the treadmill and doing without uh, without taking that time to step off? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's it probably starts from so we start from a kind of uh, quarterly set of priorities that we're working towards in that quarter. And that's about as far forward as we go from a, like a detailed perspective. So, and, and in the team, we have the things that are our, our focus. We've split the team into different, you know, different bits that we focus on. And then, then you know, working back from that, we review that on a monthly basis. And then weekly, we set weekly outcomes individually, what we're going to achieve this week. And we do a really informal daily stand-up as well. So whilst we're not using some fancy kind of OKR tool or anything like that, we are... T- together as a team, I think, all heading towards those quarterly things that we set and they cascade down to what we do on a day-to-day basis. But it still allows us to remain really agile in what we're doing because, you know, we sit down and review the big things pretty pretty re- you know, regularly as well. Um, and when we feel like we need a big thinking day, we <laughs> will take, like, literally carve out a day, it gets blocked out in the diary, woe betide anyone that puts it a meeting that day. Um, and last time, you know, it can be something as simple as last time we just went and sat in the South Bank Centre, which has appalling internet connections. So it was quite nice. You were kind of forced to work on pen and paper. And we just kind of spent the day working through some of those big questions and, try, you know, removing the distractions of email and all of that sort of stuff. And so it's, it's really simple, but those really yeah. help as well. I, I think there's, there's some weird irony maybe in the fact that I feel like we have more focus on our ways of working than I ever did working in a kind of in a in a project team. So I think we have to because there is so little capacity to go around and the process we put in place are quite you know that that we we've kind of I suppose tried tested quite a few different things and we've ended on something which worked really well for us to take us down from those big goals down to the, the smaller things. On those points and I, I said I'd, I'd come back to it a few times and I I will is if others are looking to emulate, you know, the the success and the impact it's had for you, are there any books on that specific topic around the ways of working or sort of strategy in a startup that have helped you? It doesn't, and I've realised because I've over the last three interviews, I think the last three guests have all told me they don't read books, they read articles and watch videos. So it doesn't have to be books, but is there anything that you would has really helped you or you would point people to around that space? Yeah, I think there's the one we use relatively regularly a Google Ventures sprint book which is how you basically do a answer a big design question over five days and we've even accelerated that down to even shorter versions of that and I think the, the other one which I think is probably more connected to some of the ways of working as well is is just having an awareness of some of the agile ways of working because even not when even when we're not developing the software as a team on business goals we still apply quite agile principles you know operating in and sort of sprint cycles, if you like, around that. So I'd say they're probably... Yeah, and I think from from like a personal, manage, managing personal workload perspective, the one that I come back to all the time is Deep Work mm. by Cal Newport. And it is, in a nutshell, about how in an age where things are, we've got so many distractions, the ability to really deeply focus on something is just becoming the rarest commodity. And there's all sorts of reports out about how we've got like the, the attention span of goldfish now. And so that, and so I, you know, I, I have a set thing in my diary every Sunday to try and block out deep work time where it's an hour and a half of really focusing on something. And it's amazing how hard that is to do, actually. But it's but, amazing how much you can get done when you get it right. Yeah. yeah. And if it's not related, stop me. But I obviously sort of, I've spoken with both of you before and, and we know each other outside of this, but in my research for do, for this podcast, there was something, and it, Karina, it was to do with yourself, but Jim, you might also do this, so tell me, around your three-day, so I read somewhere that you regularly take sort of off-grid holidays. <laughs> He's, Jim's pointing at me. Uh, <laughs> so maybe this is just a, a Karina thing. We'll, um, we'll, we'll, I'm just, 
I saw it and immediately thought, I'm going to ask about that because I guess it comes, it might come back to that deep work point. Is it, maybe I'll leave it open of, of why do you do these? Yeah, so I guess for an example for, for people listening that got a lot of raised eyebrows. Well, I, so last year, I, t- I went and stayed in a shepherd's hut in the middle of nowhere in Sussex for, I think, I think it was three or four days. There was no internet, literally nothing. And, and you were alone for this week? It was just you I was and alone the shepherd's for this, hut? Yeah. Okay. Just me and the shepherd's hut and the, um, the donkey that actually lived in the yard. And, it was, and I got, a lot of people thought that was really strange, but I suppose for me personally, like that, having time on my own with good books and no technology is you know, a really important thing for me to kind of reset and re-energise a little bit. And I, for me personally, I don't do much more than three days, otherwise I go a bit mad. But, um, but yeah, I've, I really enjoy that. And we've actually talked about doing potentially something similar as a team, where, of course, we'd be together. But going, you know, mm-hmm. going away for like a, a couple of days or a weekend, somewhere where you know, you're away from some of those distractions and in nature. And I think there's a lot, a lot to be said for getting out. You know, we, we work in the middle of the city, it's chaotic, there's, you know, it's concrete. Having that, a bit of distance from that can be quite, quite healthy, I think. Yeah, and well, th- <laughs> thank you for saying, it sounds like I wasn't the only one who, who was curious about it. I guess maybe because, yeah, for those listening who can't see, see us having this chat, you know, Jim, it doesn't, it doesn't look like this is your way of unplugging. <laughs> um, so, so I'd be curious maybe for those who, some, I think, you know, Karina, your approach will work. Jim, how do you unplug? You know, what is your, what is your approach to to sort of like Korea says, just step away from the city, the business, and just have that time. I think the first thing to say is that it's actually really hard. I think I think that's why the kind of quite extreme approaches do work quite well. I think it's hard to it's hard to switch off, obviously, when it's kind of you know your your baby, as it were. I think the the, the important thing for me is I, I I try to actually take proper holiday, and you know just because actually we recently have installed our own HR tool for tracking how much holiday we take, but actually try to take the normal amount of holiday that you would take if you were in a you know a normal company, <laughs> you know, uh, and um, and so I think taking holiday and when, while I'm away, I try and sort of obviously switch off as much as possible and do something active like cycling. And my only experience doing something a bit like that was when I very very first left EY. I did go and spend two days on my own in Airbnb in Devon, oh, and uh, and it was similarly kind of get you get raised eyebrows like well, why would you go away on your own? Um, and it just felt like something I needed to do for some reason. And to be honest, I haven't had a craving since, you know, I'll now go on a holiday with my girlfriend and she's not, she wouldn't be too pleased if I took all my holidays alone, obviously. So, but I think the importance is drawing boundaries. And I, in August, actually, I tried two weeks where I finished at 5.30 for two weeks and it worked for two weeks and two weeks only, but it, you know, it worked. And I think just doing those little things like that just sort of force you to create some natural boundaries between work and doing other things. I think, I think one of the things that maybe we take for granted because we've always been, you know, two founders is the value that it can be being two of you because when one of us goes on holiday like unless you know literally things are burning down you, you know the other part that you, know, you can really switch off so you know I obviously know people that are sole founders and that's I think for me personally I think that I find that really hard I do want to come on to the the, the co-founders and the skill sets around that and how you know, the benefits you see from doing that we've sort of dived into the work-life balance side and it's obviously you're now. Is it th- you're three years into building the business? Am I right there? Uh, two and a bit. Two and a bit. Yeah. Two. A- yeah. And I think one thing that, especially, and I'll apologise in advance because I, I tend to sometimes over exaggerate on this podcast. Social media platforms have caused a bit of a fetishization about entrepreneurs, and we see lots of stories about someone who sold their business for millions and travels around the world, you know, on their jet because they've just cashed out for millions or billions or, <laughs> what, you know, whatever it is. And I think a lot less is made of or talked about the, the challenges and, and what goes, what went into that. You always see on LinkedIn, people have got new jobs. You don't, I don't think I've ever seen a post on LinkedIn saying today was really shit and, you know, I hate my job. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think it'd be really interesting, especially for those listening around, you know, what, what over, say, the last two years, have you found as a biggest challenge from, you know, that, say, work-life balance perspective? You know, Jim, you mentioned around the, the sort of uh, social pressures. You know, what for the two of you have been the biggest challenges over this time? And how have you managed or overcome those? Mm, interesting. 
I think should I start? Mm. I think I think the, the the two the two for me there's probably there's, there's lots, but I'll just, the the two big ones I think are um I think you spend a majority of your time operating outside your comfort zone or a lot of your time outside your comfort zone. So I think that just in itself is very exhausting. And that it, there aren't so many things you can go back to and be like, okay, this is this is my this is my sort of my sort of comfortable bit because you are wearing so many hats all the time. So I found I've personally found that challenging, and um, I think that comes back to making sure we take proper time out and we we recover. I think the other thing is I I did underestimate the impact and the reality of the kind of sacrifices we've made financially and how long that impact might last, and some of the challenges that's had, you know personally on you know where I am in my life planning a wedding wanting to buy you know a house or a flat with my now fiance there are things which are really challenging which have you know um, as you can imagine cause you know uh, challenging discussions I think my lesson away from that and if I could go back in time two and a half years was to, to try and set more realistic expectations with people in my life um, who are impacted by this and sort of take more of a worst case scenario and communicate that earlier because I think it's just I think that's probably been the you know, the, the hardest thing. Because if I was on my own, I could see myself just cracking on forever, <laughs> just carrying on forever. Uh, you know, so I think there is a bit of the, the, the underestimating the impact that this has on other people in, in, in my life has probably, probably been one of the biggest challenges. Um, so, so probably the biggest challenge that I've felt has, can be probably summarised by learning resilience. You know, at, particularly around um, sales, so at, during my time at EY, I, I wasn't really involved in selling much. You know, I was off delivering projects and I suppose towards the end of my time I got involved a little bit in business development, but really not a lot. And of course, when you're building a business, it's almost all sales or, you know, trying to uh, convince companies to work with you or investors to get involved. And and that has been, and of course, with that comes um, a lot of a lot of rejection and having the ability to like bounce back from that is something I continue to have, you know, to work on. And I think that's probably been the biggest, for me, like the biggest personal challenge is cultivating that ability to bounce back when you get something you're excited about happening, it doesn't happen, okay, get up, work on the next one. And, and um, so, yeah, that, for me, that would probably, probably be it. On that point of resilience, what what has helped you? What is is it experience just having done it, or are there other things that have helped you get comfortable with with being comfortable with being uncomfortable? Is that that's yeah? <laughs> I don't know if that's the best um, way to say it. Uh, I, for me personally, kind of, there are probably two big things that stand out. The first, I worked with well, I went to um, a workshop with a brilliant little company called the Happy Startup School, and there was a speaker there called. Oh, I'm going to forget his name. Um, the author of a guy about quiet introverts, and um, he basically shared this message that confidence ebbs and flows. And he said it's a common misconception that confidence is a state, like you are either confident or you're not confident. But that isn't how it works. It, you know, sometimes you do have, you know, you are brilliantly confident. And sometimes you will feel a bit more, a bit less confident, a bit more shaky. And I think for me that was really helpful to to hear that. And also the second thing is meeting other people. So um, meeting other people, building businesses, maybe at a similar stage or further along and sharing stories and the, not just the success stories, but also the, God, this is really hard today. Have you been struggling with this? What did you do in this situation? And we're lucky to be in a co-working space where there's some brilliant people around us who, some of which are at a similar position and just having other people around who are going through that, that journey is, has been really important, I think. Brilliant. And Jim, I do want to come back to to your piece and we'll we'll move on quickly after this, but you you highlighted a really key point around with hindsight, you you would have you would manage those expectations better, you would have those conversations. If someone's listening to this and they are about to start on this journey, what conversations should they be thinking about having? I think if it's if it's to do with, you know, the impact it might have on you know, loved ones and, and people outside of work. I think it's it's being as open as you can about your motivations and why you want to do it. And I think I think together assessing the impact and the sort of and, and how that's going to work in practice. Because I think there are practical steps you can take to make it work. And I think we 
certainly have got better at living on less. And I think you know there there are exercises like that which um, which having those conversations up front mean that it's less of a surprise when when some of the realities hit of what it means to kind of start a business. So I think being open and honest up you know as much as you can and um, and sort of coming to those conclusions together and coming up with a plan together of how how they're gonna how you're gonna tackle those things. Yeah, I'd say that. Brilliant. And I do want to, and again, if for, for those who listen, this won't be a surprise, but I, I like to jump around in these interviews. So thank you for bearing with me on it. Is I want to actually bring us all the way forward to what you've been working on most recently, which is your funding round, which as I understand it, you achieved your target. Congratulations on that. And again, I think funding startup businesses is something that you see on Facebook a lot of businesses that have done it, but people don't that's the sort of the social media side there's a lot of hard work that goes into it there's a lot of effort there's a lot of Karina to your point I expect rejection and conversations that lead nowhere I'd be great to to just dig into that for a little bit and and understand what were those key challenges or learnings you've taken away from funding from this funding round and what you might do different for the next one so the best advice that we got about fundraising was it's a bit like dating. You've, you know, you don't, if, it, if someone is going to meaningfully invest in your business, you know, with a you know, significant amount of money, they are joining you on a journey that is going to last years, most likely. Um, and so that relationship, there's got to be kind of a cultivating of that relationship and, and a mutual decision about about whether it's the right decision to to work together and I think when certainly a learning from us in the early days was that that decision both ways is really important sometimes it can be really exciting when someone says oh yeah I want to invest but if it's not the right call for us as well then that's got to be a, a, an important part of the decision so so we I suppose what, what we do differently about you know people that we have in mind that we think god we'd, we'd love them to be on the journey with us and we we got, we got people in mind that we you know are on that list, Make, you know keeping them involved. This is what we're up to. This is what we're doing. It might be that never turns into an investor relationship, but it certainly increases the chances. I think. Anything you'd add? I think persistence again. <laughs> it's that's like when, sales. That's when maybe it's, that's yeah. when maybe it's not it's not quite like dating because you can't be a persistent dater. <laughs> you can. <laughs> you can. Yeah. yeah um, you get restraining orders for that, I imagine. If yeah, you're... but but I remember, I remember you were saying sometimes you 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 thought an investor wasn't replying, and you'd send that one last email, that email number four, and you caught them at the right time, and they were like, "Yeah, actually, this is the right timing for me." Because yeah. you know, because timing's a big thing, and therefore, if you're not persistent, you're unlikely to catch someone at the right time. So I think sometimes being, again, resilient and persistent. Yeah. Well, and that, I guess that point, you know, like you highlighted, actually that persistence paying off and it might be a British thing. I, I don't know if it is, but I think too often we send the second chaser and we don't want to be rude. So we stop there. And to your point, maybe people are just busy. Yeah. 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 On the dating metaphor, and I'm, I'm terrible with, I'm terrible with all metaphors. I'm passable at sports metaphors. So this might be a car crash, but you will... You may have, and if this isn't the case, sort of tell me, but as we're dating, you may get people who like to go out for a few dinners, string you along a bit, but there's, there's no, never going to be anything serious there. And I wonder, did you get this with investors where people are making all the right noises and they're, but there's always one more thing that they want to see and you know, you, you can, eventually you can tell in your gut they're just not interested and, and apologies, it's a terrible terrible question and quite waffly, but the, the point is that I'm trying to get to is, did you develop a, a sense or a, a sort of radar for people who liked to get involved, go for coffees, have the chat, potentially because they like being in the world of startups and sort of seeming cool, but were never really going to invest? And if so, were there any ways or sort of just things that you've developed to be able to weed those people out early so they're not you know time vampires and just sucking all of your time for for no potential benefit yeah so I'm no doubt we've had we've had those coffees for sure (laughs) I think one of the questions that we come back to a lot that we try to make sure that we ask to ensure that we're not wasting our time but equally not wasting their time is what would need to be true for you to invest now and 
that often flushes out answers that make it clear whether or not, you know, for example, oh, actually, we only invest a minimum of this. Great. OK, well, would you like would you like to stay in touch for the next race? So we try we try to get better asking that question. And I think I think we've been actually lucky in some respect. I don't feel like we've gone down too yeah. f- too far down the road with with people um, that perhaps. I think we applied a lot of the stuff that you learnt in sales to investment. So having qualifying. having some qualifying criteria that we try and be quite punchy with and ask about them. So one of them being, you know, as Karina said, and also things like you know uh, where are you in your your fundraising cycles? Quite often you're speaking to an investor and they say, well, actually, yeah, we, we won't have filled our fundraise our fundraising pot until you know, 2020. So, and, and, you know, that can come out late. So I think it's just having those criteria and making sure you ask them early in the process. If you're happy to share them, and if you're not, don't worry. I would be fascinated just because I think that's one of the best questions I've heard in a long time. What are your other criteria or what are your other questions that you put to your investors to weed out the, or sift out those ones that aren't going to be right early on? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we do. I think when we, we, we often ask what, what other investments do you have? That sometimes gives a sense of, that doesn't necessarily weed people out, but it, it gives a sense of, are they, do they know about the industry that we're in? That's, you know, that could be a good and a, yeah. and a bad thing. Um, I think other ones we, you know, we often ask is, is at what stage you normally invest um, as well? Um, because quite often they might be having a conversation with us, eyeing us up for 18 months down the line, which is important. We need to build those relationships, yeah. but sometimes you just need to speak to the people that, you know, and then the, the last question that we always try to ask as well is who else should we be speaking to? Because an obvious one, because they, you know, even if perhaps it's not the right timing for them or it's not the right the industry that they're looking to invest in, they might, chances are they know someone that might mm. might be. So. so brilliant questions. And I, I'm, I'm still just reflecting on that. What would need to be true question? That, that That's really, really hit me, guys. And I think if you... Know, I get as much from this, these conversations as my listeners, and you know that that is a phenomenal question. That actually, I think you can apply to most things. I think if you replace invest to whatever else you're deciding on, I think that's a fantastic one. And I'm very conscious of time, and I know that Jim, to your point around getting away at five thirty, because of me, you are not today. And so I am very firstly thank you very much for this, but I I'm very conscious of time, and I while I would love to keep speaking with you guys for for the whole evening, and I hope we get. Maybe at your next, to your point, Jim, maybe at your next raise, we do another interview and we have another chat. I've got two last questions and I'll be really interested in the answers to these and then we'll sort of call it to an end. So the first one, and it comes back to books. This is, this is a much more open question, is what is or are the books that you have find, found yourself gifting or recommending most often? And to help you with that, let's say in the last six months. So non-fiction, it is The Alliance by Reid Hoffman. It was recommended to us by one of our advisors, Richard Gould at Morehouse. Um, And it is, I mean, it's just, it's very core to what we believe and what we're building at Grow Happy. And I think it lays out the kind of context of what the world of work is like in a really nice way. Fiction book, if that's of interest, is The Poisonwood Bible. I've given that away numerous times it's a beautiful book in mine are uh, both my non-fiction homo deus mm-hmm. the sequel to sapiens which i haven't actually read in i've not read sapiens but i've i've lent i've lent that to a number of people um and i just find it fascinating you know what his predictions are on the future of the human of, of humans and the second one which actually might break the six month rule but so th- there was a book actually which um, was given to a lot of the leadership team in my old organisation called Exponential Organisations, and uh, it was all about how the sort of the rate of change in the world, um, how organisations needed to adapt across all of their kind of elements of the operating model, and I found that really interesting as I was moving away from uh, consulting because there's lots of things you can uh, play into to sort of smaller businesses too. So yeah, Exponential Organisations was my, my other one. Fantastic. Some, some great recommendations. I'm actually in the middle of Sapiens at the moment. It's uh, on my Audible in the car to and from work. It's a big one. So I'll, I'll move on to Homo Deus after that. And I'm actually, I, I'm going to take a second swing at this just because of, Karina, what you mentioned around your, your advisor's recommendation. And I'm actually, I'm going to see if there's any additions for what are the, I'm not going to give you a number, what are the books that your advisors have recommended or given to you that have had the biggest impact on your journey with Grow Happy? So I, I think 
One particular is called Reinventing Organisations, which the, the, <laughs> the full version is quite academic and a bit of a, a textbook, but written by a guy called Frederick Laloux, who talks about how organisations are evolving from being very machine-like, coming out of the Industrial Revolution and becoming more organic and family-like in the future. And he has done a beautiful illustrated version of his book, which is much shorter and you can download it for free and well worth a look for anyone interested in organisational culture and change. On the business side, perhaps. I mean, the obvious one, the, the Lean Startup, we've got a number of advisors who live and breathe by that book. Yeah. And there are definitely chapters there that are helpful to come back to. Reading it back to front can be a little bit, <laughs> little bit dry, but coming in at certain chapters, yeah, can helpful at times. Yeah. There's some great some great additions. We've got a great reading list here and you know I genuinely love these recommendations because they they help me as much as my listeners. So thank you for those. And then the last question and again I'm I'm going to tailor this slightly just given your your unique circumstances as compared to some of my other guests who may be in consulting firms or running them. So usually I ha- ask for advice for three people and I'm going to ask for four with yourselves and and again sort of when I give rules or guidance here, it's really only to help you. So if it doesn't help you, throw it out the window and give the answer you want. So you have four people in front of you. The, the first is someone just entering the consulting industry as a, an analyst, so say just out of university. The second is someone who is four to five years in, so senior consultant manager level. The third is someone just approaching partner. And the, the bonus person who I'm adding just for you is someone who is anywhere within those grades who has an idea and is thinking about going out and starting their own business. What one piece of advice would you give to each? Should take one? Take one each? Yeah. Do you want to start? Yeah, okay, we'll <laughs> take it in turns. Let's see how this goes. So to the person just starting their career in consulting, I think probably... Two things. Be a sponge. And all the, ex- all the new experiences, all the things that get thrown your way, soak them up and just try out, try out new things. And that's one of the beauties of consulting is that ability to try out different projects, try out different industries and, and see what, what, peaks, what peaks the interest. And the second one, I suppose, would be meet as many interesting people as you can and try and learn from them and work with them. So the person that's four to five years into their career, interestingly, quite like a high risk of leaving this particular segment of people in organisations. But I think, you know, at this point, you know, they've really established the foundations of their career, built up some core skills, which mean they can, you know, really add value in their organisation and beyond. I think it's 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 a worthy time because they've got enough experience under their belt to reflect on what it is they really love about work, what they don't love about work, where they can really apply their skills to kind of be their best self in their organisation. I think at that point in time, they have enough data points, if you like, to reflect on that and therefore um, make a really informed choice about where they're going to invest next in their, in their career. For someone approaching partner, I feel a bit nervous. I feel unqualified <laughs> to give any advice to someone at part level, but maybe being humble enough to learn from people in your team. And I think more than ever where jobs exist today that didn't exist five years ago and kids are learning to code in schools and we are going to, cons- all of us, be constantly needing to reinvent our careers and reskill. Yeah, having, having the humility to know that even with all that amazing experience, there are things to learn from even the most junior person in the organisation. I don't know if that's a bit controversial. <laughs> So the, the last one was someone who has an idea in their business. I'm not sure I'm qualified for this. <laughs> well, as someone who, yeah, someone who was in your shoes two and a half years ago. Yeah. So take experiments, you know, while you are, I think, still in the, the safety of your organization. An experiment can be anything from doing a number of kind of problem interviews, for example, with, with, with people in the area of your potential idea or spinning up a really simple really simple MVP. There's just so much opportunity now with some of the sort of tools that are out there to to take very small steps to test and prove an idea before you take dramatic steps. And then second to that I think is is really kind of nurture the relationships and the network that you might need to take that forward. I just I, I just think one of our the biggest things that's helped us is the relationship we probably built five, six years ago that we're that are sort of the ones that are really helping us along the way now as well. So I think nurturing relationships um, that you know, might help you with your next steps are really important too.
Brilliant advice, guys. Well, thank you so much for that and for your time and all of the other points from today's interview. Like I say, I've taken a ton from it. I know my listeners will. The last thing to say and to ask is for those who have listened to this and want to find out more about yourselves or find out more about Grow Happy, where would you point them to and where can they get in touch? So to learn more about Grow Happy, best place to go is our website. So that's growhappy.com co.uk we've got our new website launching in two weeks which we're very excited about so do go check that out and then probably best by by LinkedIn we're both sort of on LinkedIn um, so we love hearing from people so feel free to reach out fantastic guys well Really appreciate your time tonight. I know you've got a million and one things on and it's been great to catch up and hear the bits of the story that I haven't heard before and all of the questions that I haven't had a chance to ask before, not least the the three-day holidays to the Shepherd's Hut, which <laughs> I now know about. And I'd say, I like the idea. I might, I might try it. We'll see. Um, but guys, thank you so much for this. Uh, and all that's left to say is all the best for the rest of your week. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us on. Really enjoyed it. Cheers, guys. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb In Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.